I'm John Gary, Animal Welfare Superintendent for the City of Oklahoma City, and you're listening to Common Bonds Radio. Hi, I'm Kelly Burley with episode 10 of our podcast featuring a conversation about COVID-19, animal welfare, and the new normal from a national perspective. We're joined today by Holly Sizemore, Chief Mission Officer with Best Friends Animal Society. Hi, Holly. Hi, Kelly. Hey, thanks so much for uh, taking some time to visit with us. Before we begin, uh, if you could tell us a little bit about yourself, where you grew up, uh, your life with pets, and really how you came to your calling in animal welfare. Sure. I've always loved animals. I think I'm similar to many of us who end up in animal welfare, who ever since I was little had an extreme affinity to animals and loved animals. In terms of me wanting to make a difference in the lives of animals really came about as a young adult when I was working as a waitress in a local restaurant where I grew up in Salt Lake City, Utah. And there was a a family of stray cats uh, living by the dumpster and um, one of the mama cats had babies. And so I called my local shelter and asked, you know, advice because I wanted to help these cats. And this was back in the early 90s, right? So there was no caller ID back then. (laughs) And I remember um, talking with the animal shelter and I was just shocked that the only intervention opportunity for those cats was to bring them into the shelter, which at that time, the, the vast majority of cats were being killed in that setting. And, and, you know, when I brought up alternatives, well, you know, can't we just get them spayed and neutered or something? Um, you know, the response was such that uh, I was going to be a criminal. They said, if you continue to feed those cats, we could fine you up to $50 a day. And at that that's the moment where I just hung up the phone <laughs> because I was like, well, clearly um, this isn't going to solve the problem. And so that moment really changed my life. And I chose instead of uh, going off to graduate school, which was my original intention at that time of my life, I decided to form, um, co-found the first TNR group in the state of Utah at that time with another woman who actually was a patron of that restaurant. And she had seen the the cats around as well. And so together we formed a group uh, that's still alive today, more, more focused on adoptions now than it was back then. But I also endeavored, even though I had had that really negative experience with my local shelter, I endeavored to get to know them, to understand their perspectives. And that shelter was one of the first shelters in America to do a public-private trap-neuter-return partnership as a result of years of us getting to know each other, to understanding our differences, and to being committed to working through differences and being able to sometimes accept incremental change. And I was patiently persistent. And now, you know, that shelter is a no-kill shelter and is uh, the largest no-kill shelter in the state of Utah, government municipal shelter. So really proud to see what they've evolved to and proud to have played a tiny little part in that. And from there, you're now with Best Friends Animal Society. So tell us a little bit about your current leadership role as chief mission officer. Yeah, I'm lucky enough to work with some amazing people at Best Friends. 
I oversee our legislation and advocacy area, our mission advancement area, and national programs, which, you know, those are departments that the titles don't really say much. But, boy, the teams of people are really out there pounding the pavement, really working to do what you guys in Oklahoma are doing so well on a statewide level, on a national level, really helping to assess the situation, see, you know, where the problems are, analyze the situation, see how we can help help to participate in or lead coalitions and and figure out how we can together save more lives. And clearly, there's always a public element to that, the community feeling engaged and empowered and a part, the local elected officials and the laws that sort of create the political and legal landscape for success of the great programs that we're seeing um, happening more and more across the country that we know work. You know, I think we... The beautiful thing about animal welfare right now is we know what to do. Um, it's just still sometimes a struggle to get it done because it's hard work. Hey, thanks for that shout out, Holly. We're really pleased to have Best Friends Animal Society as a working partner in the Common Bonds collaboration to save animal lives. So um, I'd like to turn, if I could, to what you're seeing from your professional perch specific to COVID-19. Um, how is the animal welfare community weathering this perfect storm? Yeah, I think like everyone, there's been a lot of anxiety and concern for our healthcare workers, for our shelter workers, for our families. Um, you know, we're certainly in this as a world, aren't we? And and early on, I, I have to say, I was so proud of the sheltering community for recognizing that we needed to protect our shelter workers, that we needed to start doing emergency intake, that we needed to do A and B shifts so that our, you know, workers, if, if someone did fall ill, we could still provide that essential service for the animals still in our care. I was overwhelmed and amazed by the community support, the, the amount of animals that went into foster homes, well, dogs specifically, actually not that many more cats went into foster homes, interestingly enough. But, you know, tens of thousands more dogs went into foster homes all across the country as members of the public said, yes, I want to help keep shelter workers safe. I want to help save the lives of animals during this time. And a lot of people were working from home. So really, we, we, we were lucky in that there were um, some silver linings and some tremendous community support. So what we saw nationally, the data shows intake went way down as shelters were um, doing only emergency intake in many cases, not all, but many and adoptions were also down, which was, wasn't a surprise because, you know, a lot of people were staying at home. And, but the good news was is that, you know, the, the positive outcomes were still far outweighing the intake. And so we saw a, a pretty major reduction in euthanasia across the country, about a 60% reduction in euthanasia compared to the same time frame last year. So that was a beautiful silver lining. Um, and we saw groups come together in ways that they never have before. You know, none of us had the answers. None of us knew quite what this thing had in store. And so in that period of great uncertainty, uh, we just started talking more. And so I've, I've seen some bridge building across our movement like I've never seen before. As we start to reopen, you know, I think people are starting to uh, wonder, you know, how do we go back? What is the new normal? Um, there's anxiety that 
uh, we won't continue to see some of this momentum that we saw during COVID. There's concern about, uh, well, things that we saw. We ha- we have this impression that, well, if we if we weren't taking in as many animals as we normally did, what impact might that have on the communities? And so far, we're not seeing any negative impact. We're not seeing dog bites go up. We're not seeing cruelty cases go up. Um, so some of our assumptions about, well, what would happen if we if we thought about the way we intake animals a little bit differently. So far, we're not seeing, um, you know, negative consequences of that in, in to a large degree. Now, we certainly also weren't spaying and neutering during that time. Many spay neuter clinics shut down uh, because they, they had to. They weren't deemed essential. And we needed to think about that PPE for our healthcare workers. So that was the right choice. So now there's an eye to... Gosh, it's estimated we missed out on about a quarter million spay-neuter surgeries <laughs> during that time. Wow. So there is some question about what the impact of that might be on, uh, you know, kitten season in particular. Well, Holly, there's a lot to unpack in reimagining the relationship between animal caregivers and their local communities. Is that one of the takeaways that could last once we return to normal from this pandemic? Absolutely. You know, I think what we proved was that our shelters and our animal welfare professionals and our nonprofit rescue groups and our community stakeholders have done amazing things, particularly over the last decade, to really transform the way we think about animals and safe and humane communities. But COVID really did make us have to accelerate some of the great stuff that was already being done. And I think that we now really know that, you know, too much of what we were doing in the past, we did put the burden on the shelters themselves and that there's a great opportunity to broaden out the way we think about animal sheltering and to, to make sure that our shelters are seen as pet resource centers where they're providing support to the public and the public is given the trust and, and the services and the support. For instance, uh, if you find a stray animal, you know, for many years, ordinances required that animal to be impounded into a shelter setting. But with the advances in technology and seeing during COVID where people were taking in only emergency animals, we got to really clearly see that, you know what, by and large, if someone finds a lost animal, data shows that that animal can can find its owner by the person who found it. You know, in today's day and age, even if that animal may not have a tag, through platforms like Nextdoor and virtual lost and found postings, and if shelters were playing more of a support role in making sure that they're helping to educate the public, maybe they have a texting program, maybe they have ways to uh, support the reunification of lost animals with their owners in ways that won't require that animal coming into the shelter at all. It's those kinds of advances that I know, I just think we'll definitely be able to hang on to. I'm hoping we'll be able to hang on to some of the ones that maybe are a little more nuanced and particularly as it relates to healthy, free-roaming stray cats. If we are faced with having to kill healthy stray cats, should we even be taking them in in the first place? And would the, the, the more appropriate intervention be a direct referral to uh, 
you know, trap, neuter, return, spay, neuter, referrals. And so that's one that I'm hoping we've seen that program succeed. I mean, me being one of the first people who um, really embraced this idea and helped pioneer it along with, you know, dozens of other people who are smarter than me across the country, this concept is something that I've seen really work everywhere across the U.S. in rural, urban, a bunch of different environments. So I'm really hoping that the the idea that we really shouldn't be impounding healthy, free-roaming stray cats unless we can assure them a positive outcome will be something that sticks. But I think that one will take a little more doing because it's a little counterintuitive and uh, it, it really does kind of really challenge the way that we've thought about how we handle cats in our communities from the past in some areas. A lot of areas have adopted this and they've been doing it for years, but you see a really, you see a lot of divide in the country, even town to town. I talk to people all across the country and one town will be like, oh yeah, we've been doing return to field and trap neuter return targeted TNR for years. And it's great. The public loves it. Our elected officials love it. The people who loathe the cats love it because we have this program where we make humane deterrence available at wholesale to them. So everybody loves it. And then the next town over, they have a ban on feeding cats. They don't allow it. They, you know, and so it's really interesting to see um, how how many people still are worried about trap neuter return and return to field as a viable program because it's really just bore out to be so successful pretty much everywhere where it's been done. It's interesting you're talking about an evolution in practice and engagement in a new way with communities. So how do shelters go about communicating the urgency as their animal population reaches capacity? And what are some of the options for shelters in terms of how they communicate the urgency and the need for the community to get involved? Yeah, I think transparency is a beautiful thing. And I know shelter directors have sadly been vilified um, in past times um, by people who, of course, we all, none of us want to see animals dying. Um, and so sometimes that displaced blame on the shelters themselves is, is a sad reality. And, and that then in turn makes them not want to be transparent with the public, right? But what you find is, is if you are transparent with the public, and you share everything you're doing to save more lives. And of course, you know, you have to have a plan in place to do that. You'd be amazed at how much the public will stand up and say that they want to help. And in fact, Best Friends did some research that showed that people were more likely to want to donate and volunteer and help their local shelter if they knew that they weren't, they hadn't hit that no-kill benchmark yet, but that they had that as a goal and that they wanted their help. And so I feel like just being able to be open and transparent about this is where we're at. We're getting to capacity. We need the community to step up um, and, and really talking specifically about the situation. If sometimes it's a hoarding situation, you know, and it's, you know, a, a big number of animals coming in unexpectedly all at once. And then other times it just may be yeah, kitten season. And so working on those programs that help to prevent those animals from coming in in the first place. Um, you're seeing a lot of programs like with the kittens, you know, instead of that the shelter asks the people, okay, it's, it's, a, it's a tough place for kittens to be in a shelter. They're so fragile and vulnerable and they're very susceptible to disease. This is not a good environment for them. Uh, if, uh, would you be willing to 
foster these kittens and even find homes for them on your own even. I mean, even trusting the public that much, you know, hey, and if, if the foster family needs some supplies, maybe being able to offer some help with that. I mean, A, so A, really helping to empower the community to help solve the problem from the get-go, and then B, just being open and asking for help, I think is so powerful. Holly, do you have any words of advice for shelters going forward and how they communicate the importance of their services in a way that puts them on par with other municipal emergency services such as police and fire? You know, our animal shelters and our animal shelter workers are so critical to creating safe and humane communities. And I think sometimes we get a little left behind in comparison to those other agencies because people think we're there to help the animals, which we are. But for every animal that is touched, it's touched probably multiple people. And so I try to reiterate that point that here at Best Friends, our, our, our vision is a better world through kindness to animals. And that human-animal bond and how that elevates people, how it helps us be more compassionate people with other people, how it helps build bonds within neighborhoods. So it's not just about saving that animal. It's also about enriching the lives of every person that animal touches. And it's about our neighbors working together to create more compassionate communities. And so I feel like continuing to talk about that message that shelters are integral to preserving and enhancing the human-animal bond and to supporting the community ethic of safe, inhumane, and kind communities. I, uh, particularly now, when I see a world and a country so divided politically, honestly, for me, um, it's those animals. It's the animals that help me get over my political divide because that's something I can absolutely have a conversation with whomever about is our common love for animals. And that then makes me be able to see them as a human being. And it's through our common love of animals that has opened up, I think, the door to have a dialogue that we wouldn't have had otherwise, and it makes us better people. And so sometimes I think we just forget how powerful animals are to not just helping um, helping us think about kindness and the joy animals bring, but the kindness and the joy of human-to-human interactions that they bring. We've talked some about change, but going forward, Holly, what keeps you up at night specific to this pandemic and the work of animal welfare? What keeps me up at night is, you know, when we were in that utter chaotic moment with where no one had any of the answers, it was actually easier to build bridges in that environment because no one had the answers. As we start to, quote unquote, reopen, I'm, I'm already starting to see us talk about, well, this is right, that's wrong you shouldn't be doing it that way. You should be doing it this way. 
And while I agree wholeheartedly that there's a lot of programs that are replicable and scalable all across the country, um, I also believe that I say variety is the spice of life saving and that there, there are a lot of ways to save all the savable animals in our communities. And so I hope that as we all rebuild, we can commit to that diversity. You know, as long as more animals are being saved, let's, and sure, we all want to be efficient and as effective as possible, um, but let's really be open to that diversity and let's not start to talk about what the best way is in some cases, you know, as long as those animals are being saved, let's, let's really celebrate the variety of ways that that can happen and continue this momentum of collaboration. Holly, what are some of the priorities that Best Friends Animal Society will be pursuing in the coming weeks and months? In the short term, being able to embrace the new technologies that allow us to be more virtual, I think is a great opportunity that Best Friends is working hard on doing. And there's a number of technologies that were there before COVID. There's been some new technologies that have come about during COVID. And so really helping our shelter partners to um, understand what, what those are, what's available to them and help them adopt them if it's going to help them save more lives. And also this idea of how do we think about intake differently and how do we do more of a community supported look at intake so that we can prevent pet homelessness from the beginning and prevent the separation of families from their pets. And then also this idea of cats. You know, kitten season is upon us. We are already seeing nationally the cat intake start to creep up, even though it's still far below where it was last year. Um, so we're really focusing on continuing to show the data and the science and the programmatic and the political acceptance of targeted TNR and return to field programs and getting as many shelters as we can to continue to really um, think about return to field as, as the right approach or and not taking in healthy free roaming strays if they're at risk of being killed. So really it's about really making sure we adopt that technology. It's about really providing that safety net and looking at intake differently. And then of course this continued focus on engaging with the community members, asking for their help, for their support and fostering in adopting um, so that we, you know, we can continue these inroads. If we play our cards right, this may, this may be the most incredible year for life-saving across the U.S. Right now, there's about 700,000 cats and dogs still being killed in U.S. shelters. And we have an opportunity right now that that 2020 number could look dramatically lower if we just hold on to some of this. This momentum. So I'm very excited, and we're going to continue to reach out to all of our shelters as much as possible. Continue to be a part of our coalitions, like the great one that you have with Common Bonds, and um, you know, really just commit, recommit to that that collective impact. I also wanted to drill down on a collaborative program that Best Friends is involved with to ramp up spay neuter services in Oklahoma and seven other states as a way to overcome the backlog of spay neuter surgeries you mentioned earlier. Yeah, we're, we're really uh, thrilled to be a part of this coalition. And Amy St. Arnaud, our Director of Veterinary Outreach for Best Friends, is 
um, one of the key organizers of this collaborative effort. And, you know, pretty much everybody and anybody is, is collaborating on it. It's super exciting. So I had said earlier that we think there's about a quarter of a million surgeries that didn't happen as a result of COVID. And so this is a program to help uh, infuse communities with a little extra resources to safely provide phase of neuters for the next three months, June, July, and August. And so it will be a variety of different ways by giving grants to spay-neuter organizations, um, providing consulting services and advice. You know, I think a lot of us have, um, you know, we want to we wanna get back to our normal sort of volume, but we also have to do it with social distancing. So uh, we've created guidelines on how you can, you know, operate your, your clinics and in a socially distant and safe way. And so it's a, a combination of grants, consulting services, webinars, things like that, trainings, and then some MASH, also some MASH events happening in key strategic areas across the country where some groups will go in and do large-scale MASH spay-neuter efforts. So really exciting stuff, and it's just so wonderful to see everybody come together. The goal is 50,000 surgeries um, as a result of that effort, effort over the course of three months. Hey, Holly, what's the one thing you want those on the front lines of animal welfare to know right now as it relates to their work of the COVID-19 pandemic and the future? These times are scary and change is scary even when it's good. And so I just am so excited to think about the kinds of opportunities that all of us are going to be able to engage in as we start to think about more community-based programs and that our animal welfare professionals will spend less time on daily care of animals and more time on using their skill sets to troubleshoot and help pet owners keep their pets, preserve that human-animal bond provide the kind of services that make pet parents and pets successful in their households. And so really, I, I want to say change, change is hard and change is scary, but there's still an amazing, positive, wonderful role for animal shelters and animal welfare professionals in this new way of doing business. And one that I think, um, you know, is going to be really exciting and fun to be a part of. Holly Sizemore, Chief Mission Officer with Best Friends Animal Society. Thank you so very much for joining us on Common Bonds Radio. Well, Kelly, I just want to say thank you so much for all the great work that Common Bonds is doing. You guys are an incredible example, and uh, the animals of Oklahoma are very lucky to have you. This podcast is a production of Common Bonds, a statewide collective initiative with a shared goal to end the needless euthanasia of cats and dogs in Oklahoma shelters by 2025. I'm Kelly Brilling.